Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. The podcast you're about to listen to is part of a six-part virtual webinar series entitled Palestine and Israel, Key Issues for the 118th Congress. The series took place during February and March of 2023 and was convened jointly by the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute's Palestinian Affairs Program. In real time, the series was presented for members of Congress and congressional staff only, but all six sessions were so good and the issues and viewpoints they covered so important that we're now releasing the entire series to the public. The other five sessions are also available via the Occupied Thoughts podcast, and you can find the video versions of the entire series on our website at www.fmep.org, along with resources related to each discussion. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the session. So good morning and welcome to our fifth session in the six-part congressional briefing um, series, Israel-Palestine, Key Issues for the 118th Congress. I'm Kristen McCarthy. I'm the Director of Grants and Operations at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm pleased to be co-hosting today's session with Khaled Al-Gindi, who is the Director of the Middle East Institute's Program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli Affairs. Khaled. Thanks, Kristen. Uh, so today's session is on internal Palestinian politics, in which we'll be looking at the state of Palestinian politics, political and political institutions, uh, as well as the future of the Palestinian national movement more broadly, uh, including the effects of uh, the ongoing political division between Fatah and Hamas, uh, the question of if, when, or uh, how to hold elections, prospects for PLO reform, uh, and, and other types of institutional reforms, uh, as well as likely challenges uh, of political succession in a post-Abbas uh, era. So to help us uh, better understand these issues, we've assembled another really excellent panel. Um, I'll introduce them here briefly in alphabetical order, but you can, you can see their, their full bios on the landing pages for uh, for this series on both the MEI and uh, FMEP websites. Um, so first we have Salim Barahma, who is with uh, Uncivilized Media, uh, and he is a longtime political activist and organizer. He's joining us from Jericho in Palestine. Uh, next we have uh, Dana Al-Kurd, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Richmond, uh, and also a non-resident scholar with the Palestine program at MEI. Uh, and uh, lastly, we have Khaled Hroub, who is a professor in residence at Northwestern University in uh, Qatar, joining us from uh, Doha. Um, uh, in addition to uh, the uh, uh, landing pages for our websites, keep uh, keep an eye out on the chat box uh, for Twitter handles and other resources that our colleagues will be putting in over the course of our discussion, uh, links to articles or uh, events or other kinds of content related to today's discussion. And if you miss anything, don't worry, we'll be um, adding those materials to uh, the website for this series uh, later on. Um, so just a, a little bit of context before we delve into the subject. Uh, so I think as most people know, Palestinian politics and political institutions have been in a state of disarray and decline for many years. The problems span the entire gamut from political division, institutional decay, both within the Palestinian Authority and the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, 
um, chronic financial uh, problems, growing corruption and authoritarianism, both uh, in Ramallah and in Gaza. All of these highlight what many people, uh, particularly Palestinians, see as a much deeper crisis of legitimacy, as well as a lack of strategic vision for uh, Palestinian liberation by either uh, the PA in Ramallah or, or Hamas in Gaza. All of this is happening in a particularly hostile environment at the local, regional, and international level. Uh, locally, uh, of course, violence uh, by both the Israeli army and settlers is at an all-time high, uh, while the settlement project is succeeding uh, at the de facto annexation of more and more land. Uh, the Arab states, who once formed a critical base of support for the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian cause more broadly, um, has largely uh, have largely deprioritized uh, and in some cases maybe even uh, abandoned the Palestinian issue as more and more Arab governments seek separate normalization deals with Israel. Uh, meanwhile, the US, the EU, and the broader international community are largely distracted with other priorities and in any case seem unable to offer any new ideas. Um, so before we, we delve into the discussion, I think it's worth taking a step back to, to provide a, a little bit more context in terms of Palestinian politics, which are a little bit idiosyncratic um, in, that, in a number of ways, but particularly in that they're operating in a, in a uh, context of Israeli occupation. Um, and so that limits in, in many ways the, the freedom of, uh, of decision-making uh, of Palestinian leaders. Um, and also we're, they're operating with this sort of duality of, of institutions in the form of both the PLO on the one hand, which was established in 1964 as the umbrella organization to represent Palestinians everywhere. Uh, and on the other hand, they have the we have the Palestinian Authority, which is created in 1994 as an outcome of the Oslo process, uh, which has a, a slightly different mandate. Uh, on paper, the PA was to be a sort of administrative body <clears throat> running the day-to-day -day affairs of Palestinians in the occupied territories uh, in the West Bank and Gaza, while the PLO remained the primary uh, political address of the Palestinian national movement. Uh, for example, it's the PLO and not the PA that negotiates on behalf of the Palestinians and that sits in international forums like the United Nations uh, and the Arab League. Uh, whereas in reality, the PA has all but eclipsed the PLO as the primary venue for Palestinian politics. Um, so Dana, I wanna ask you to start us off uh, with a kind of basic lay of the land. What makes the Palestinian body politic unique? What makes it tick, uh, both in terms of the issues that animate Palestinian politics uh, and in terms of the actual structures uh, that we uh, talked about of governance and leadership? Uh, what does governance in the West Bank and Gaza actually look like, um, given people often confuse the PLO with the PA uh, or use them interchangeably? Um, uh, and so how do these two bodies relate to each other? Uh, and also how do they operate in the context of, of Israeli occupation? Yeah, um, thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, so I will uh, first start by uh, saying that um, there's basically, we could say five or six Palestinian realities, and this is what kind of um, 
shapes the the Palestinian uh, um, reality, you know, situation overall. So first, there are Palestinians in Gaza um, under a particular kind of governance. Palestinians in the West Bank under different layers of governance and also a particular kind of governance. Palestinians in East Jerusalem, again operating under a different set of institutions, a different set of uh, 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 limitations. There are Palestinian refugees and or diaspora. Um, so that's why I said five or six, if you want to count, you know, Palestinian refugees uh, who are um, uh, recognized as refugees, as well as those who um, have, have left as part of um, both political and economic kind of uh, uh, reasons in, in the diaspora later on. Um, and then Palestinians within the Green Line, within Israel. So given the kind of array of realities that the Palestinians uh, function under, um, I think each of these communities um, has a, a difference in the hierarchy of priorities um, um, in terms of their political objectives. Um, and, and that's not, you know, um, by by mistake or by kind of a lack of strategy. It's, it's uh, very much... Uh, uh, um, uh, a direct result of um, both Israeli as well as kind of international policy towards the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that has, you know, diverged and fragmented um, um, the Palestinians to this degree. So um, Oslo in particular, uh, I know you referenced the Palestinian Authority, so I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but uh, the Oslo framework in particular exacerbated this divergence between the different Palestinian communities and what um, they see as kind of the, their top priorities um, to to deal with with the um, you know the challenges they face in each of the, their realities. Um, I, I'll get back to that because I think there's now more of a convergence in the last year or two, but um, uh, yeah, just setting that aside. So um, in terms of governance in all of these areas, Gaza is governed by, as you mentioned, like uh, Hamas government, um, which is maybe less uh, fragmented uh, in terms of its governance as a result of the blockade, as a result of Gaza's situation. Um, the West Bank governance, however, is is quite layered and fragmented in, in the sense that um, the Palestinian Authority function in certain certain areas and not others, um, and they're losing uh, their grip on the areas that they're supposed to be uh, um, uh, governing even under the kind of Oslo framework. Um, there's, you know, the Israeli occupation layer, there's the Palestinian Authority layer, there's the municipal layer, the local layer, um, as well as kind of uh, uh, grassroots um, initiatives that are also vying for um, control, um, uh, largely as a result of the Palestinian Authority's inability to, to service the population. So all of that is happening in the West Bank. East Jerusalem, you know, they're, they're functioning um, under... Um, direct Israeli occupation and are dealing with a particular um, set of challenges and statelessness um, in a way that I think um, uh, doesn't necessarily match the, the other parts of, of uh, the Palestinian body politic. But um, so all of that is happening. Now, um, why I mentioned there's maybe more of a convergence in the last couple of years on the hierarchy of priorities is for two reasons. Even though there are all of these kind of fragmentations, um, and that has kind of let different Palestinian communities in different directions in the last maybe 30 years. The last couple of years, as a result of both Israeli intransigence and um, increased kind of uh, uh, Israeli extremism and radicalism, as well as the response, the unity in the in, in 2021 and kind of the aftermath of that, there now is more of a discussion about how we might um, you know, converge uh, on on 
you know, what it is that Palestinians are demanding and kind of to break free of, of these uh, um, uh, uh, fragmented realities um, that has been imposed upon them since 1994 in, in particular. Um, I know you also, sorry, I'm, I'm all over the place. I know you also asked a question about the PA and the PLO. Um, the reason that, the last thing I'm gonna say is the reason they are confused is because the PLO has largely become irrelevant and because many of like the the only functioning or semi-functioning institutions within the PLO which is as you said it's this large umbrella um, organization so the PLO executive committee or the PLO central council or you know those those kinds of things are overlap almost entirely with some of the people in the PA um, and are controlled by uh, you know Mahmoud Abbas and the people in the PA and so um, the PLO has been left largely to function as as kind of just a uh, uh, you know uh, ghost institution i don't know how, i don't know what they what do they I think there's a term for it in ir it's like a zombie institution or something so it's it's no longer functioning um and there have been some calls to maybe revive the plo and things like that um we can get to that in the next couple of questions but yeah hopefully i answered everything thank you donna that i hope we can get back to the convergence of priorities later but before we do i want to turn to khalid um, and talk more about this fragmentation and the, the obstacles to, to that. So Khaled, one of the most serious obstacles to pal Palestinian political cohesion is not just the political and, well, it's the political and geographic split between the two largest political factions, Fatah, which dominates the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and Hamas, which governs the Gaza Strip. So this division has been in place since 2007, um, following Hamas's legislative victories uh, the previous year. Um, and since then, we've seen numerous attempts to try to reunify the PA and Hamas, including about a dozen reconciliation agreements between Hamas and Fatah over the last dozen years or so, and most recently in September 2020, following um, Arab normalization deals. None of these have succeeded at reintegrating the Palestinian polity. So first, can you tell us uh, what impact has this division had on Palestinian governance and leadership on the one hand and, and Palestinian nas national aspirations on the other? And second, how central is reconciliation to reviving a unitary Palestinian political leadership in your view? And lastly, what are the major issues preventing that reconciliation? All of that. My <laughs> God, you have so many things. Uh, thank you very much for this uh, question. Um, let me kind of try to use my my few minutes um, in, in summarizing the main points at, at least uh, that relate to uh, your questions. Um, I'm going to look at them from two perspectives. One is Palestinian and another one is, um, let's say, Israeli or let's say peace process perspective. From a Palestinian perspective, um, as we all know, the split took place in 2007, uh, as you said, uh, after the elections, maybe less than a year. Um, and then we ended up with two entities. Um, in the Gaza Strip, you have Hamas controlling the politics, the, the land, of course, but of course, under uh, Israeli air, sea, and, uh, and, and land kind of a blockade. And then the other blockade is the West Bank with the Palestinian Authority led by Fatah. Um, this kind of split in geography, in the demography, in the politics of the Palestinians, of course, um, obviously took its toll on the Palestinians, almost, in, I would say, in all aspects. Politically, of course, hindered, you know, the emergence of any effective or unified leadership. Uh, at the national level, uh, it deeply harmed even the, the psyche, the 
of the Palestinians, the sense of na nationhood, the national pride of the Palestinians and, and belonging. And in terms of um, the um, disconnecting the geography and even the physical movement between the two uh, parts. So it has it has created great kind of um, um, catastrophic, I would say, consequences for the Palestinians. Now, every one of these, uh, Hamas on this side, uh, the PA on the other side, would function separately. Um, I have this kind of metaphor saying um, in, in the West Bank, we have hard politics, um, supposedly is run by um, Abu Mazen and, and the Palestinian Authority. And on the side of Gaza and Hamas, you have hard resistance is run by them. And when I say hard resistance, this refers to the missile and bombs and, and the the things that not every Palestinian, ordinary Palestinian can use. So you have a monopoly of hard resistance here. You have a, a monopoly of hard politics here. When I say hard politics, this refers to negotiations, diplomacy, the things that, again, ordinary Palestinians cannot engage with. So this kind of, uh, these two monopolies uh, left the bulk of the Palestinians in the middle paralyzed, not knowing what to do. Uh, so you have you have you have these two processes, in fact, neutralizing the vast majority of the Palestinians, either inside Palestine or outside Palestine. And this is another for me, another kind of uh, uh, catastrophic consequences of of this split, because this main bulk of the Palestinians that used to be very active, this bulk led the first intifada, the second intifada, and nowadays somehow revived in certain pockets here and there. This is the strategic um, reservoir for the Palestinians, uh, um, uh, if you like. Now, the last point that I want to kind of to refer to here, that this is split, now this is from the perspective of the peace process, if you like. This split is, is, is used by Israel and sometimes by the Americans and others as the main, and, or at least one of the main obstacles facing the resumption of the peace process. Why we are not doing any negotiations? Because the Palestinians are divided. And for me, this is a pretext because the Palestinians used to be uh, functioning under one unified leadership since 2000, at least since 1967, until the split, until the division in 2007. This means we had 40 years of one single Palestinian voice, one single leadership leading the Palestinians and nothing happened on the ground. So Kendo, I just wanted kind of to highlight this pretext in, in our kind of discussion here, or at least in our my first intervention. I'm looking at the time, I think I need to stop. Uh, thank, thanks for that, Khaled. Um, Salam, I want to turn to you. Obviously, Palestinian division is just one aspect of a deeper set of problems. Um, over the past decade, especially, we've seen a, a, an increase in authoritarianism and corruption in both of these authorities, both uh, in, in the West Bank and in Gaza. Um, just uh, uh, and, and of course, in the absence of, of a functioning parliament, um, there are few, if any, checks on President Abbas's power. Uh, who basically rules by decree. Uh, we saw just last week how PA security services uh, raided and shut down a, um, a civil society-sponsored conference that was planning to issue a statement uh, of some sort criticizing the Palestinian leadership, 
um, and calling for, for general elections. Um, this is something that we've seen uh, repeatedly. And of course, we had uh, last year the, the killing of Nizar Banat, a prominent um, political dissident and, and anti-Abbas activist uh, who, was, who was killed by um, Palestinian uh, security forces uh, actually two years ago, uh, almost. Um, so as someone who's been active in civil society uh, in various NGOs, where, where does this trend of growing authoritarianism um, come from and, and what does it mean in terms of this shrinking space for civil society to operate uh, for the future of, of Palestinian politics? Thank you, Khaled, and thanks everyone. It's great to be with you. Um, I, it's, it's no longer a growing trend. We do live under an authoritarian regime. I mean, we have an unelected leadership that's been there uh, for, for, for more than, what, 15, 16 years now. And um, the, there are no political or national institutions, there's no political system, there haven't been elections. I'm you know, almost 34 years old and I've never voted in, in a Palestinian election other than municipal elections. And uh, there, there are no new political parties, there's no space to organize, the crackdown is extremely harsh. Um, and anyone who voices a dissenting opinion, let alone call for elections or democ democracy or representation, is swiftly closed, is shut down. And that's that's part of a existentialist uh, feeling the the leadership in the West Bank has a, a, about uh, their position. Uh, I mean, if you look at the West Bank, they basically only control a few cities: Nablus, Jenin. Uh, majority of the northern West Bank is not under their full control. And if you go south to Hebron, I mean, the PA is not very welcome in Hebron either. So uh, there's a, there's a, they're in a position of fear, even though they still have to an extent a monopoly, a monopoly on violence. And the leadership is towing the line that is promoted by the Americans, the Israelis, and the, two, the international community, which is the two-state solution. So they're, they're very much... Um, you know, in, in a position that serves the interests of most. Um, and they have no internal checks, no ex external checks. And at the moment, for them, it's about how do you maintain power at all costs? And this is where we have arrived. And so there's no people always ask for the Palestinian opposition. When are they going to rise up? Where's this third party that goes beyond Fatah and Hamas? Well, there's no space for it. Uh, because on one level you have authoritarianism and then on another level you have apartheid. And between between both, it's very hard to get anything going. Um, and so now people are extremely disillusioned with the political process and are going to the armed struggle. Um, one in reaction to Israeli apartheid and settler violence, and the other is the lack of a political process, representation, and a direction forward. It's very simple. Thanks, Salam. I'm, I'm going to stick with you and dig into some of these issues. You've kind of anticipated my next set of questions here, but I'm going to ask you to, to give a little bit more. And um, a lot of people still see, and this might just be the international community, that they think the best way to revive Palestinian politics um, and restore legitimacy to the Palestinian leadership is through elections. As you mentioned, the last time any national elections were held in Palestine was 2006. Um, and that led to the rise of Hamas in Gaza. Um, in 2021, President Abbas surprised everyone by announcing a timetable for, for new elections in the spring and summer of 2021. 
Um, the elections were going to be held in three phases, starting with the Palestinian Authority legislative elections, then the presidential election, and then culminating in the Palestinian National Council, which is the PLO's long dormant parliament. Um, a total of 37 electoralists and almost 14,000 candidates had signed up to take part in those elections. But three weeks before they were scheduled for the first vote, Abbas canceled those elections. So can you talk to us about why those elections were canceled? What does that say about the electoral process in general? How did it affect Abbas's domestic credibility? And if you would, humor us with your prediction for if elections are possible in the near future, if that's something that we should be looking to. Sure. Um, look, I think the, the the numbers you laid out for how many lists registered is indicative of how hungry and thirsty Palestinians were for one democracy, two, the, the opportunity to elect their own leadership and, and representation. I think we crave it because we feel like the national movement is is already on its deathbed and we need to revive it with new people, um, with a new vision, with a new strategy. And that can't be built on the same structures uh, and people who currently lead it. And so the cancellation came due to the lack of popularity by Abu Mazen's party, Fatih, within, within Palestine. I think they were, you know, polling very poorly. Um, they had troubles putting a, a list together and, and all the grievances within Fatih came to the surface and there was a lot of infighting and the calculation was going ahead with the election would be bad for us. And so let's let's cancel it essentially. I think that's the analysis many people read into. And I, I think what's really interesting to observe is that the, the official excuse used was that the Israelis wouldn't allow elections in Jerusalem. Now, at the same time, almost around the same time, there was, it was almost around Ramadan, there was Palestinian youth in Jerusalem were, were standing up to Israeli soldiers as they were uh, pretty much imposing on their ability to, to celebrate Ramadan in Jerusalem. And there was also the ethnic cleansing and expulsion of people from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah. Young people decided to confront Israel in Jerusalem. Abu Mazen had the chance to get people behind him and confront Israelis in Jerusalem by holding elections and challenging them and fully confronting them. And he chose to, 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 to cancel. And I think that shows you essentially in a nutshell where young Palestinians are and where the leadership is. And it's a massive gap. And, and so I, I don't think that elections are coming uh, anytime soon, although I think they would be the, the beginning of trying to rebuild some some sort of sense of unity amongst Palestinians and the factions. Um, and and I think we also need to remember that, you know, uh, amongst regional players and international players, the Palestinian leadership is very much, um, you know, not fully sovereign in, in the sense that Israel, the U.S. gets to, and, and some regional countries, really get to dictate and pressure whether elections happen as well. And I think that's the other thing we need. And so if, if elections were to happen, they also need US support. Um, and that, according to my understanding, wasn't the case. And Israelis also didn't want elections. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an equation with many variables, um, but I think elections are necessary and they're, they're the, a good step forward, even though they won't solve everything, but they are 
something to get the ball rolling. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Salem. Um, Dana, I want to ask you, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the importance of holding elections, um, especially given some of the uh, risks and and restrictions that, that Salem alluded to. Palestinians don't have full uh, control over even their own domestic politics. Um, but I also want to ask you about another key demand um, that we that we often hear from Palestinians, and that is the need to revive, reactivate, or rehabilitate the PLO in, in some form uh, as the primary uh, address for the Palestinian national movement, which as you indicated has been basically in a, uh, a state of paralysis, or you could use the term zombie institution. Um, so <clears throat> so as, a, as a member yourself of this Palestinian diaspora, what is the significance of the PLO uh, in terms of uh, the Palestinian national aspirations and moving them forward? And how feasible is, is this idea of reviving or rehabilitating uh, the PLO? Or is it time simply to look for a new institution and replace the, the old PLO? Yeah, um, lots of big questions. So um, first, just a note, the zombie uh, organization is uh, as a term by Julia Gray. So I didn't make it up. It's it's an actual thing. Um, but aside from that, um, yeah, it's these are big questions. And I, I am a member of the Palestinian diaspora and obviously very invested in what happens um, as a Palestinian. But I hesitate to to make um, to to make, you know, grand proclamations, like at the end of the day, the people who who live on the ground are the ones who have to deal with the consequences. I would say, however, that um, in terms of elections and their role, um, Salem makes many, you know, very good points about how, you know, his theory of change is that they might be kind of a, a starting point for shifts in, in Palestinian politics. The alternative, um, which what I'm about to say is often used by people who just don't want to be accountable. So um, just to make that clear, but but there is something to be said about the fact that um, elections under these circumstances um, help to um, create um, uh, one kind of uh, a channeling of Palestinian energies, maybe in the not most fruitful direction. The second is um, in the international community, even though, as, as Sada mentioned, like they weren't actually behind these, these elections and the Biden administration couldn't care less about um, supporting them. But even so, if elections were to move forward, um, kind of a, a, in the West Bank at the very least, um, there is um, some, some fear that it's used by the international community and used by Israel to say like, uh, you know, these are domestic issues or, or um, this, is, this is how, uh, you know, they have to sort themselves out and 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 uh, see they have some level of self-governance and they have some level of um, autonomy. Um, so um, that's one kind of, you know, worry about focusing on elections uh, as a tool. The second worry is that given the circumstances, given the fragmentation, and given that um, a large segments of the Palestinian population, even on the ground, uh, cannot really participate, uh properly so i know east jerusalem for example was used by as a fig leaf by the palestinian authority but it's true that they cannot participate um and then you know obviously the fragmentation between gaza and the west bank as well um it's it just you know at the end of the day you wonder how um how useful 
that all that effort is in terms of um, uh, you know making any kind of uh, significant change. Um, now, to be clear, Palestinians on the ground do need some levels of accountability. So, like municipal elections, for example, are different from you know the the things we're discussing. And I'm not I'm not claiming you know elections off the board, um, but there is something to be said about um, possibly looking elsewhere. Uh, given you know all of the obstacles that face the Palestinians and given the finite amount of resources and energy that we have. Um, as you said, there, were, there was some discussion about reviving the PLO um, that's been going on for quite some time. Um, and um, even though it is a zombie organization, but I think the reason people stay, you know, the PLO did represent Palestinians across um, the, the diaspora as well. And, um, certain Palestinians um, in the current context are completely cut out of the equation, which actually has huge ramifications about how we foresee a, you know, a conclusion or a solution to this problem. If, if you know, huge swaths of the Palestinian population are cut out of any kind of final negotiation process, then this is, this is a problem. Um, um, so the PLO on that sense was a very important organization and in spite of all of the, you know, the severe repression, the assassination, everything that Palestinians face, the PLO continued to function, um, you know, at varying, varying levels, perhaps, but still continued to function. So the reason I think people want to revive the PLO is because we shouldn't throw all of that effort out. There have been these attempts, um, I think quite marginal attempts, by uh, leftist uh, activists and organizations on one hand, and then also um, maybe more maybe this is unfair to say, but maybe more Islamist aligned uh, um, organizations and individuals on the other hand to create kind of alternatives to the PLO, but they have been very marginal in their impact. And so that's why um, people have said, you know, maybe that's the, the path forward is to revive the PLO and to pressure um, the Palestinian Authority to, to do that. That being said, you, you asked about um, how likely that is or like how feasible. Um, I think logistically, especially in the, today's you know, day and age, like it is feasible. Um, we are much more connected than the Palestinians in the past were. We, we also Palestinians, um, particularly in the global north, are have made huge strides, and so logistically, we could very much foresee, like, you know, getting Palestinians together, even uh, doing certain types of voting and things like this. What's what makes it infeasible is a lack of political will, and so that's that's where um, the the PLO question also kind of falls. Um, um, uh, falls on the wayside when we think about the range of, of, of strategies that are available, which is, again, to allude to uh, Salem's uh, um, uh, uh, answer earlier, is that is why people have taken to more grassroots organizing um, and more militant and more armed resistance um, uh, as a result of this reality. I don't know if I answered everything, but there we go. <laughs> Can I comment on the election thing? Sure, I have a question for you about elections. Can I ask it? <laughs> and then you can answer what you want. Um, but I, I want to come back to you because part of the challenge of either reviving the PLO or holding elections is the question of Hamas. Um, either of those things would necessarily require formally integrating Hamas into the Palestinian body politic, which of course is going to pose a problem for Abbas and Fatah who don't want competition. But also for Israel and the U.S. and most of the international community that have designated Hamas as a terrorist organization and have barriers around 
interacting with Hamas or bodies in which Hamas is a part um, as a formal um, legitimate political actor. So um, I want to ask you, how can Palestinians go about integrating Hamas politically without triggering the international sanctions that might come with it? Um, especially given the PAs and Abbas's massive dependence on the U.S. and Israel and international donors. And is it so is it possible to revive Palestinian politics without Hamas? Um, yeah, thank me. you very much. For this. Yeah, let's kind of talk maybe quickly about the premise of the question. When, when, when somebody says, because this is all over the place, maybe the same kind of um, design of the question. Can Palestinians or can the region or can whoever... Uh, uh, or in what ways uh, should they integrate Hamas? Who integrates whom? And why Hamas is seen as kind of a separate entity than the Palestinians? The Palestinians should integrate Hamas. Uh, this is a group for me, I am kind of a secular and, and all of that, but this is a group that has been, that has emerged within the Palestinian people, winning free and fair elections in 2006, uh, and it's not kind of a matter of integration. It has been already, in, it integrated itself in the system, I think, in the political system. Um, and it's a matter of others to acknowledge and recognize this reality. And for me, I think there is no way forward uh, for the Palestinians without the so-called integration of Hamas, because th this is not a marginal group, 5%, 10% of the Palestinians, in every single poll or survey, whether we like it or dislike it, they have you know almost kind of half of the percentage as others. They compete strongly in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. So it's kind of the, the, the idea of integrating Hamas, I think, or shall we integrate Hamas? I think it needs to be even dismantled in, in terms of concept, conceptually speaking. Now, um, when Hamas won the elections in 2006 and, and all that kind of crippling strategy led by the by Israel and the United States, uh, it, it says, you know, a lot about the whole system and the whole the Palestinian, if you like, politics. That this politics is in fact uh, controlled and, and um, somehow maybe caged even in, 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 in certain place. And you have you you are you are allowed to to move around within that limited space within that cage, and if the guardians of the cage um, are unhappy with some group within that cage taking over the others, they they would kind of maybe they shut down the gates of the cage. They would tell the gate that the cage to to destabilize the whole situation, and this is what. What's happening? And this takes me, I think, to maybe the point that I wanted to make about you know, the, 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 the impact of external factors in the Palestinian politics. And this is a long debate, of course, whether internal or external factors you know, take a priority and impact uh, the situation more. I don't think that we, we can have uh, a, a black and white answer to all situations. I think we need to have every single maybe case context and even timeline with timeline as well along our analysis maybe in certain times we have we can blame the palestinians because they missed opportunities and they they had the, uh, the chance to do uh, this and that but i think at this very moment 2023 with the current kind of uh, fanatic government israeli government and with the regional conditions 
that Khaled read in, about, you know, in his introduction. Uh, I think even if the Palestinians had a Scandinavian-like government, the change would be very incremental because the, the pressures and the impositions on the Palestinians are unbearable. Uh, you cannot simply, the, the point of the elections, you cannot simply uh, hold elections, even if all parties agreed, even if Mahmoud Abbas suddenly became kind of a, a prophet of democracy, simply because Israel would say no, no to the elections in Jerusalem. That's it, then they can veto the process. Um, the reconciliation between Hamas, Hamas and Fatah, they, they, they placed and they could even add more, uh, they placed conditions and they could even add more conditions to that re reconciliation. And that would go nowhere. So you have all these pressures nowadays, especially in the last, let's say, five years and now, uh, maybe peaking to the highest point nowadays to, in this year, where you have the Palestinians, in fact, when it comes to the big issues, they have little to small, uh, small room to maneuver, I think. I can do, the international community would not interfere positively when they kind of watch the Palestinians, let's say, heading to an impasse in terms of a democratic governance, let's say. When we compare, just kind of to compare the influence of ex external um, players, if we go back in 2003, 2004, George W. Bush was unhappy at one time with Yasser Arafat's uh, monopoly of power. He thought you know, he is centralizing too much power in his own hands. And they pressured him to appoint Mohammed Abbas as a prime minister, kind of a division of power or distribution of power. Arafat was very stubborn. He fought really very hard against this, but at the end of the day, he couldn't but to yield to those pressures. And then Mohammed Abbas became a prime minister under Arafat's presidency. This means if there was a will from the international community, and maybe just kind of a shorthand to the USA, America, to interfere in, in positively, to, to push Israel, to say, yes, we want elections. We want Palestinian elections. We want some sort of Palestinian consensus so that we can move forward. In this case, you, you have things kind of moving. Um, but without the engagement of, of external players at this very moment, I can't see um, things moving moving on. In fact, we, the US maybe and the EU to a lesser degree, they are happy with the situation, with the status quo. Mahmoud Abbas accumulating even more power than Arafat used to have in his own hands. Okay, be it. As long as the status quo is just going on and the the escalation takes place within uh, an accepted kind of degree. Even nowadays, the talk is about the de-escalation, which is escalation is accepted, but we need kind of an accepted kind of level uh, level of it. Now, the last point, maybe this is, if you like, the, the forest perspective. The tree perspective, if we go down to, to Abu Mazen himself and the vis-a-vis uh, the, uh, -vis the, the whole idea of integrating, integrating Hamas, Abu Mazen, uh, Mahmoud Abbas is, 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 is not into this mood anyway. He has so many issues with Fatah itself, his own movement. Fatah has split into different groups. Some of them totally kind of now outside the formal uh, movement and others inside, but still you have at least two or three Fatahs with us. 
So let alone to to integrate Hamas or to talk about Hamas or to to think about some some inclusive system whereby you have all Palestinian parties and and, and players uh, coming together and then creating creating a, a, a consensus or a collective leadership. So Mahmoud Abbas in totally different kind of mode of uh, thinking and he is having no pressure either especially from from uh, from outside um the last thing um the international community when it comes to hamas uh, i think this was mentioned in the in, in the question somehow um they placed on hamas a set of conditions um and they they are known as the quartet three conditions to recognize israel to denounce um, uh, terrorism, quote unquote, and then to uh, acknowledge and all the agreements signed on uh, upon by Israel and the PLO. Three conditions, very solid conditions. And I think Hamas in 2006-2007, they had gone through almost halfway in meeting these three conditions. They accepted a Palestinian state within the 1967 borders. Yes, they added to that, you know, without recognizing Israel. Okay, but at least it was kind of indirect way just to appease their constituencies and to say we are still holding to our principles. And they stopped resistance and they're saying resistance does have so many forms, including politics. Um, and then by the mere fact of participating in those elections and becoming the government of the self-rule system, they in fact acknowledged, if you like, the parameters, general ones of Oslo Accords. But there was, I think, from my humble analysis, there was no um, coming to Hamas from the other end. So if they, 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 they met, let's kind of meet halfway, there was no sincere or no even intention, no desire to include Hamas, not because they, they didn't like Hamas, for me, because the whole idea of having a Palestinian consensus, a Palestinian agreement, collective agreement, uh, ran against the intentions and maybe kind of the plans or whatever was uh, the major and dominant political thinking of the moment. Thanks, Khaled. Um, Salem, I want to turn to you and talk a little bit about the current realities on the ground. Um, as you know, we've seen a major surge in violence. Uh, 2022 uh, was an especially bad year for, for Palestinians in the West Bank, and 2023 is looking even worse. I think something like 80 Palestinians or so have already been killed just since the start of the year. Um, so we've seen a real upsurge in, in violence um, by the Israeli army, uh, uh, particularly since this new extreme government came into power at the end of December. Um, so I, I want you to, to, to talk about what that means for Palestinian politics on the ground, for the, uh, the credibility of the Palestinian leadership, um, especially given this close security cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and the uh, Israeli army, which was, I guess, temporarily suspended uh, last month after uh, a major incursion that killed uh, uh, some like ten Palestinians in in Janine, um, but but also security cooperation in general is hugely unpopular uh, uh, among uh, among Palestinians. So how does the violence um, 
affect this leadership and their and their credibility uh, going forward, especially um, uh, in terms of uh, the fact that the, the leadership's popularity has gone down and the armed elements in the West Bank, uh, their popularity has gone up. I think the the question is very simple, Khaled. Who protects Palestinians? It's it's really simple as that. I think the fundamental um, basis of a social contract between the people and their government is that you can at least ensure their safety. And security coordination fundamentally exacerbates the violence against Palestinians by the Israeli military. That's the fundamental equation. You cannot be in favor of something that is, you know, uh, perpetuating your oppression and your and your killing, and and that's what security coordination has done since its inception, since Oslo, and you know we've gotten to a place where you have Israeli settler violence that is hitting into another gear, and and I think to try to really you know forgive forgive the example, but imagine the folks who stormed the capital on January sixth. Imagine those folks roaming the hills and towns of your city uh, and, and streets of your city and, and, and going on with full violence and impunity, but aided and abetted by, by an army and a military. And that's what's happening. And so for the majority of the Palestinians who live in the north, who are surrounded by settlements like Janine and Nablus and the small villages around those two big cities, they've been experiencing encroaching settlers and settlements and violence from those settlers with the Israeli military with no one protecting them. And so people take up arms to defend themselves from that violence. And so there, there's no political equation. There's no human equation, I think, that would accept um, then your own government facilitating that security situ situation that fully undermines your, your life. And, and that's what these groups of young, mostly men, are doing in their cities, in the refugee camps, are defending themselves and have lost complete faith in the PA, in the security services. A lot of them actually, a lot of these places were Fatih strongholds. A lot of them were, were men who served in the security forces, come from families that serve in the security forces. Some of them are part of the security forces for saying no more. And that's a fundamental shift in, in, in Palestinian politics and society. Um, and that's going to continue to change. And I, I think fundamentally, it's a political problem that has a, that has a security dimension. And the political problem is what needs to be addressed. And that's why I think it, the answer is not what the American administration uh, proposed to Abbas about having a Palestinian special force go in and, and cleaning up it's about how do you address the fundamental political, social, economic factors that are driving this. And that's where America and Israel are continuously failing. And the Israelis are failing to also handle this in terms of security. So I think this is the fundamental problem. And a part of that political problem is security coordination. Thanks, Salam. Dana, I want to invite you to add to Salam, Salam's response on that. And specifically, um, you know, what we're seeing now, for a long time, people have speculated about a third intifada. Might this be it with what we're seeing right now? And I also want you to take this time to kind of talk about your research. I know you've written books on Palestinian mobilization and, and organizing. Um, so 
what protests and movements have happened in the past, armed or unarmed, and why haven't they been sustained? And what might it take for a more sustainable mobilization? A Palestine yeah, on the ground, of course. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. Um, so first, I wrote one book. <laughs> um, maybe one day it'll be many more. But uh, um, yeah, just to answer the the question regarding the third intifada, I think people say this a lot, and um, I guess my question would be like, which intifada are you referencing? So like, it's not going to be like the first intifada. We don't have a unified leadership of the uprising. We don't have the kind of civil society uh, um, and uh, not only the kind of mass uh, um, uh, involvement of civil society, um, but also the barriers to coordination across these different Palestinian realities have has have become much worse um, since the first intifada. So we don't we don't have the conditions of that kind of mass mobilization that we had in the first intifada. The second intifada was, um, you know, much more armed and much more kind of a, a, a um, devolving into uh, um, uh, armed resistance and and um, uh, fragmented uh, efforts of armed resistance across across uh, the Palestinian territories. Um, that I think is more of the model that we we are turning to at this point. Um, what we're seeing in Nabis, we're seeing in Janine, um, and other parts of the West Bank um, around around those areas um, speak to not the first model of Intifada, but more the second, where we're going to have localized armed resistance and not so much a coordinated effort necessarily um, across across space, um, but increased uh, um, increased resistance and increased uh, um, uh, escalations of, of violence um, in, across the territories for all the reasons that Sarah mentioned, you know, the lack of uh, political um, uh, pathway forward, um, the, the increased repression, I would say even worse than January 6th people. We got a lot of those. <laughs> Unfortunately, they, they have taken office, but um, What's happening, honestly, in 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 the in the West Bank in particular, is is an extremism extremism that we have not seen. Uh, um, so they've they've outdone themselves. Um, so for that reason, I think that we will see more and more uh, armed resistance. And and um, even though the the Israeli forces are very good at repressing, um, th that you know we still see these kinds of uh, explosions just because they they. Israeli intransigence, excuse me, and extremism just keeps ratcheting up. Um, so, so on that, you know, that that question answered. Um, I think you also asked a question regarding like why, what kind of protest movements have we seen in the past? And so, it, so in my book, um, uh, I talked about how because of the kind of Oslo framework, as well as particularly post Second Intifada, the kind of international pressure that took that took place uh, restructuring the Palestinian Authority and restructuring restructuring the security coordination and things like this. Um, it led to um, certain dynamics of polarization that made the types of mobilization that we saw in the past in Palestinian society kind of less sustainable. So mass movements on the scale of the first intifada, um, or even kind of like coordination across political affiliations and across geography was, was greatly reduced. Um, that being said, there are liminal kind of like liminal spaces uh, on the ground where um, because of their unique kind of situations vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, Palestinian Authority as well as uh, the, the Israeli occupation, um, we have seen more um, creativity and more um, uh, 
maybe less sustained but more iterative uh, uh, um, protests occurring. And I'm I'm particularly referencing East Jerusalem. So um, in East Jerusalem, we we saw successive waves of of protest, and each protest movement like it hasn't been sustained for years and years, but the, it builds on the one prior. Um, and what I mean by build on, I mean the organizers are um, you know people who get involved in say 2014 or 2017. They sustain relationships they they go on to uh, organize again moving forward and that's what we saw in the culmination of the unity intifada which was you know um, uh, largely emerging out of east jerusalem and the, the events that are happening there where activists and organizers are saying we we need to capitalize on this opportunity to sustain coordination across the green line across uh, um, um, the different palestinian realities um, so in terms of sustainability like we saw, for example, like everything I'm talking about um, means that we will continue to see protests. Um, and even if they fizzle out, they 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 build, um, you know, the 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 next steps for for the next kind of uh, confrontation. Um, but we might see them more in some places than others. So in the in the West Bank, we kind of like see an under uh, um, uh, underrepresentation or or less uh, um, involvement in these kinds of movements than we would see in East Jerusalem or or in other parts, um, particularly within the Green Line. In terms of armed resistance, um, the Lions Den, for example, in Nablus has has sustained like a lot of assassinations and things like that. Which is um, sorry if I haven't maybe correctly identified them they're like this militia group that emerged in Nablus um so the Israeli you know kind of response has been quite quick and and, and um uh um you know um direct <clears throat> but again given kind of the realities of the situation we can expect people to continue to try um and um yeah I don't know if if I fully answered the question of like how to sustain mobilization but um yeah i, I mean people it, yeah sorry yeah no i i i think you you certainly painted a picture of how difficult it is to sustain uh, mobilization given the fragmentation um and and uh uh i would just uh uh put in a plug for your book polarized and demobilized legacies in authoritarianism in palestine is really if you're looking for a go-to book on uh, why there hasn't been uh, a Palestinian uprising that can be sustained, that's uh, that's the book for you. And uh, there's a link in the chat. So Khaled, I, I want to come back to you um, and, and ask you about an issue that's already come up, uh, the so-called unity intifada. Uh, last, I should say, in May of 2021, we saw in the midst of the Sheikh Jarrah protests in Jerusalem and then uh, how that spilled over into a war in Gaza. And then there we saw a sort of protest spread to the West Bank, but also uh, to Palestinians inside Israel in these so-called mixed cities uh, in places like uh, Lod and in Akka uh, and, and other uh, cities where uh, both Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel live. Um, and this was a kind of new phenomenon. Um, is is this it, how significant is this in your view? Does it does it mean that um, the Palestine you know, is it reflect some new trend in the Palestinian national struggle um, that it's no longer going to be limited to just the occupied territories? Um, it, does it mean that you know? Uh, uh, actually, tell us what it means for for the future of Palestinian uh, 
leadership and for the future of the Palestinian national uh, struggle. Yeah, um, yes, as has been already alluded to, I think uh, May 2021 was uh, truly remarkable and for many Palestinians was was perhaps the finest moment of unity since maybe the second intifada in the year 2000. Now, because um, uh, it told us about the potential, the great potential within the different and fragmented uh, segments of the Palestinian people, be them in the Gaza Strip, in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and in inside Israel, and even abroad in the diaspora. We should not kind of forget that is all these uh, protests and demonstrations and support that was universally um, expressed uh, to Palestine. So there was this kind of moment that was amazing and, and gave the Palestinians this sense of, of unity. Uh, they saw themselves as, as one people, uh, steadfasting together on, on the ground of resistance, regardless of their locations, wherever they are, inside or outside Palestine. So it has reminded them and others even with 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 this oneness of of the people, if you like, um, not only across um, spaces and locations, but also across generations, because what we saw in um, in the streets and on social media, uh, this fantastic energy of the young generations. So these are the gener generations that many Israeli leaders hoped very much that they will forget about Palestine. So now you have various forms of resistance, various forms of creative ways, and various uh, globalized um, generations of Palestinians everywhere. So that was, I think, the significance of that uh, moment lies there and in the future potential of it. That is, yes, despite all the fragmentation, we still have the, the the will and the potential to do it. Now, specifically on, on one of the elements of your question regarding the Palestinians inside uh, Israel. So this kind of um, uh, spillover effect, I guess, uh, that relates to the Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line. I think this has been, uh, even before this moment, has been pro proven in the first and the second Antifada. Uh, late 1980s and then the year 2000. So you have dozens of, in fact, in the second intifada even uh, of people uh, died um, in support of the, the their brothers in, in, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So you have this kind of effect across borders has always been there. Now in May 2021, and after the passage of all those many years, uh, and the emergence of new generations, we, we, we saw that is the same potential, the same energy is still there. So, so it was kind of uh, very, very telling. Now, on the spillover effect, the question maybe is what about now and tomorrow, if there was uh, or there would be any third intifada in whatever form. I think given the, the, the current political um, reality, inside Israel and the continuous rise of religious Zionism and all these right-wing uh, fanatical groups they, who call publicly and advocate for the um, ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, either inside 
Israel or in, in the West Bank and, and, and East Jerusalem, anywhere between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. So these are people who, who do exist in the government, in the Knesset, officials, and they speak about this publicly. So given this reality uh, and having this in mind, I think any the spillover effect, if you like, if we have anything happening in, in the West Bank at a larger scale, uh, would be felt and would would be will be increased as well in scale and magnitude um, in the case of any um, third intifada uh, becomes a reality again in 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 whatever form. Thank you, Khalid. I We have nine minutes left, and one final question for each of you. So I'm so sorry to ask you to make your answers even shorter this time if possible. But Donna, I'm going to come to you for your last question and any remarks, last remarks you want to offer. And my question for you is really about the future of the PA. I mean, we've we've talked at length about the PA's crisis of legitimacy and the growing authoritarianism. We have to add to that their financial crisis that we haven't talked about yet. But are we seeing the collapse of the PA, perhaps the slow motion collapse? And in the event that the PA does collapse, who will fill that 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 vacuum? Yeah, um, so I think, his, you know, the last, especially in the aftermath of the second intifada and the split between Gaza and the West Bank, I think there was some segment of the population that um, was invested in the in the, the PA continuing. And I think that given the current situation and crisis, um, and the, and the PA's growing illegitimacy has widened. Um, and I think we see, we see that also reflected in polling. Um, so... In terms of the PA slow motion collapsing, like, yes, possibly in terms of what it, you know, in comparison to what it was, you know, a couple of years ago, um, but those institutions don't disappear. Those people who are have entrenched interests don't disappear. Um, and especially kind of the security forces, uh, we might see, you know, these some members of the security forces defecting or things like that, as we've seen um, to some degree already, but this is an establishment now, you know, there are particular groups within the security forces that are very uh, um, uh, committed, sorry, I'm losing my words, committed to uh, the, the the PA as, as a body, not necessarily in terms of its political outlook, but uh, in terms of what it represents for their own kind of personal situations. Um, so we think of like the preventative security forces and things like that. Um, so yeah, on that question, the last thing I might add is, because I know I mentioned it earlier, is, um, and we've kind of this, you know, uh, Dr. Khaled's uh, uh, comments about the unity intifada um, uh, spoke to this as well, but um, I think that the current Israeli intransigence and the repression and things like that um, obviously pose great risks to people on the ground. And what we might see if the PA, you know, does slowly lose uh, um, uh, uh, control is that, um, Palestinians will live in a greater sense of insecurity and maybe more local forces and lo you know local militia groups and things like that will will have to fill that kind of vacuum but given this environment we see a convergence of um Palestinian objectives in a way that we haven't seen so like I think particularly amongst Palestinian youth like we are we are now speaking in the same uh discourse and the same vocabulary about what Israel is and what, you know, I think a growing understanding of how Palestinians um, will have autonomy and security in the future. Um, 
even if not everybody agrees on how that looks necessarily one state or what kind of one state or things like this, but at least we are naming the situation um, uh, in the same way when we weren't before. Uh, thanks, Dana. Salem, I, I want to turn to you and kind of keeping with this, uh, the theme of, you know, looking forward. Um, as you know, President Abbas is 87 years old uh, and not in the best of health. Um, so he's not going to be around forever. Um, and yet there's a lot of uncertainty uh, about who or what might come after him, um, especially as uh, we're not just talking about one succession process, but several uh, for the PLO, for the Palestinian Authority presidency, and even for within Fatah. Um, what do you see happening um, following uh, Mahmoud Abbas's departure? What sort of power struggle do you see? Um, and, if, and if I could ask you to, to do it in two or three minutes or less. You got it, Khaled. Anything for you. Um, I think... Look, the, the, the current talk around succession is being done in an incredibly undemocratic way. The, the successors are coming within uh, Fatah to head the PLO and potentially the PA. Uh, and there, there, there are those who are belong to authoritarian stripe worse than Abu Mazen. I think they would take us to a place very similar to Sisi's Egypt if we're not close to that. Um, the... The scenario, I can make equally compelling arguments for different scenarios, where, whether there will be uh, an all-out uh, you know, resistance to, to whoever they name as the successor. I would say there won't be a public reaction, but a war of attrition against the successor. The internal infighting within Fatih could happen. It, it can go many different ways. And, and I think none of those scenarios are scenarios that I want to be in personally. I want a democratic transition of power, and I see elections as the only way that can guarantee us and the people the right to choose who comes next. The PA still holds power. Uh, it's illegitimate, it's unrepresentative, but it still holds power. And the wrong person in that driving seat can cause a lot of harm, not just to Palestinians in the West Bank, but to the Palestinian national project. They still have the power of the signature. And I think we do not want to live under a authoritarian regime and a regime that's willing to sell off national rights just to hold a bit of power in the West Bank. So for me, elections are essential. They're one step forward. They don't solve everything. We have a lot of problems to address, but it's about a democratic transition of power that is absolutely necessary at this stage of the national movement. How's that, Khaled? <laughs> So good, Salem. Thank you. Khaled, coming to you for the last word, and I want to invite your reflections on the future of the Palestinian national strategy going forward. We've talked about a lot of tactics, elections, armed resistance, popular mobilization. Um, none of them seem to be part of a coherent national strategy. So I guess, how should these elements play together? What should be the strategy going forward? If you could advise Palestinian leadership today and, and how do we get there? Yeah, uh, now um, <clears throat> to make my answer short, uh, um, I think the straight answer to this is that an effective Palestinian national program should include um, all these three strategies that you have mentioned. Uh, and in fact, at this very moment, there are several kind of strategic documents floating around within Palestinian fora 
um, produced by intellectuals, thinkers, political activists, uh, that precisely propose uh, a unified strategy uh, using a combination of um, these three approaches, if you like. Uh, and this is something very telling, and, and I think Dana alluded to this, that is the way maybe there is some sort of convergence in, in the way that Palestinians are thinking nowadays from in Palestine, inside Israel, in the diaspora, uh, on the basis of uh, one people, one land, one cause, uh, which is something that we, we need maybe to keep kind of in mind and, and observe. Uh, this is the straight answer. Maybe there is for me um, over the past few weeks, I think maybe there is another kind of a strategy, more urgent strategy. This is a strategy we have been thinking of for many, many years maybe. But there is an immediate urgent strategy that I think um, is very much kind of needed by the Palestinians, which is for me um, how to face up the policies and the strategies of the current Israeli uh, government which is specifically the idea of ethnic cleansing, because this is something serious. It is not rhetorical. In the West Bank now and East Jerusalem, we have almost almost one million uh, Israeli settlers, mostly right-wing orientated. Among them, we have between 100,000 and 150,000 uh, ones fully armed, ready to shoot. So can you can you just imagine the scale and magnitude? You have let's take you know the lesser kind of figure, one hundred thousand armed settler in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, thinking in line of all these right wingers in the Knesset, seeing the Arabs and the Palestinians are the the immediate enemy and they just shoot them and and what happened in the village of Huwara near Nablus when you have four hundred armed settlers supported by the army, the Israeli army, doing this kind of maybe rehearsal and burning hundreds of houses and cars and injuring more than 100 Palestinians and killing one. This is something, this is very alarming. It is not kind of a passing event. This could be seen as a rehearsal. Again, just think of a crazy group of I don't know, these religious guys issuing a declaration on day zero, you have to go out and then start shooting. So we need to protect our people. There is a need. This is the strategy that we need today and tomorrow. How to protect the Palestinian Palestinians <coughs> in their villages, especially in Area C, in their cities, in refugee camps here and there. Yeah, it really, it really seems like this is the missing uh, piece uh, of both the peace process and the, the Palestinian leadership. The, there, there is no entity on the ground whose job it is to protect Palestinians from soldiers and from the settlers. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to we're going to have to leave it at that. We've I know we've only just uh, begun to to scratch the surface. Um, but uh, on behalf of the Middle East Institute and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I want to thank our uh, really awesome panelists, uh, Dana, Khaled, and Salem, uh, for a really incisive uh, discussion. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining. Um, and thanks also to my um, uh, co-host, Kristen. Thanks again, and we hope to see you next week.
Thank you.